Well, as we get settled and as our little rancher roos head out, I'd ask for you to turn with me uh, to Colossians, the book of Colossians. And as you're doing that, I want to ask you a couple questions on our topic this morning. Uh, If you haven't noticed, uh, for the last few weeks, the sermons have been a little different. Uh, They've been what you would call topical sermons, uh, because we're walking through uh, the topic of our church covenant. Uh, While Derek and I are convicted to preach what are called uh, expositional sermons, that is taking a uh, sequence or a uh, pericope or a section of Scripture and exposing that, being able to bring that uh, to bear what the author originally intended for us. There are times where topical sermons are helpful. And so uh, the, the texts that we've been choosing, we, I've not been diving super deep in because we're trying to cover a broad area, which means that we're not able to go as deep. So do you see how that would be bad to have a diet like that? It would be like having cookies and donuts for every meal for months on end, which while we might like that, it leaves us uh, not in a state that we need to be in for physical maturity and strength. And the same is true for our spiritual maturity. So Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. If I could ask you to stand if you are able in honor of the reading of God's Word. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. The Apostle Paul reads, uh, writes to the church in Colossae, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. May the Lord receive honor in the reading of His Word. You may be seated. So here's the question. If you could give yourself a grade on a scale of 100 or 1 to 100, obviously 100 is what we're shooting for, How good are you at praying? It was rhetorical, but I'm glad to know. I've got everybody's grades right here, so let me go ahead and read them. I don't. There is no such thing as a good or bad prayer. You can pray wrongly. But I hope this morning to aim us to pray rightly and to be able to look at what that means. Because this morning we're looking at our church covenant and this third command, charge, implication, and that is to pray for others as well as ourselves. So how will we as a church pray for others as well as ourselves. The guiding principle of this morning's sermon 
And while it's not in totality, I believe that in praying for one another, we help, we pursue keeping the great commandment. That through praying for one another, we keep the, new, uh, the greatest commandment. What is the greatest commandment? Jesus is asked. Do you remember? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. Charles Spurgeon says that a prayerful church is a powerful church. One pastor in Jacksonville quoted this quote and attributed it to Anonymous. So whoever said it, it's a good quote. This is from H.B. Charles, quoting Anonymous. A church is never more like the New Testament church than when it is praying. Spurgeon, a prayerful church is a powerful church. Charles uh, recounts a church is never more like a New Testament church than when it is praying. How do we keep the greatest commandment in our prayer? Let me tell you. First, our prayer must be shaped by our knowledge of God. And second, it must be shaped by our love for one another. Knowledge of God and love for one another. You shouldn't have to search very deeply to find all of the commands, especially in the New Testament, where the Christian is implored, is encouraged, is commanded to pray. Be persistent in prayer. Pray without ceasing. Cast your cares on me because I care for you, and on and on and on and on. Uh, the list of passages on this specific topic is incredible. Jesus gives us examples of how we ought to pray. Uh, then we, we don't just see it in the New Testament, we also see it in the Old Testament. So if we're commanded to pray, I want us to start with this knowledge of God. Because if we think about prayer, we've got to know who it is that we're praying to. So in one sense, we're identifying both what prayer is and who it is that we're praying to. In the most simplest form, prayer is communication between you and the triune God. Prayer is communication between you and the triune God. Let me see if I can pull up some quotes real quick of what prayer is and it always without fail doesn't work the way that you want it to work but let me see if we can get there uh, a few books as i'm looking for these quotes that were really helpful to me uh, tim keller's book uh, don't forget the title it's called prayer uh, is fantastic uh, the book called prayer uh, don, uh, don carson's book praying with paul really really helpful uh, and then Don Whitney's uh, Personal Spiritual Disciplines or Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life is really, really helpful. Tim Keller in his book, Prayer, uh, says and defines prayer is the continuing conversation that God has started through His Word and His grace, which eventually becomes a full 
encounter with him. So if our prayer begins with a knowledge of God, we need to know who it is that we're speaking to. Prayer is not mystical. Prayer is not uh, this existential, we think we're doing something, but we're really not. It's really just what we think it is. No. Time and time again throughout Scripture, we see that prayer is powerful. Prayer, in one sense, changes things. God reminds His people throughout time to call out to Him. So who are we calling out to? We're calling out to the triune God. One of my favorite sermons on prayer was from a 2015 sermon uh, by a pastor by the name of Sam Albury. And it's prayer, uh, prayer and the triune God or tri- the triune God and Christian prayer. And he talks about how it is that we pray. Uh, it's going to be way better than the sermon that I preach. So go home and do yourself some good and listen to this sermon, uh, the one that he preaches and this one, hopefully. But a knowledge of God, who is it that we're speaking to? From the beginning of Scripture, we see that this God is powerful, right? That He has not hidden Himself away, but what has He done? He's revealed Himself by speaking into existence everything that we see, right? There was nothing but Him, Father, Son, and Spirit, in perfect communion before all existence, before all of creation and he spoke it authoritatively into being we need to know that god is powerful if we approach a god that we think is small is minuscule our prayers likewise will be small and minuscule but church we worship a big god who is authoritative is powerful to move and to Act. He's sovereign in that there's nothing that goes uh, outside of his knowing and his planning. What he plans, he fulfills. What a great reminder that the Apostle Paul tells us that he who began a good work in you will see it forward to completion. The same is true about all of creation. We worship a God who is sovereign. We also, from our scriptural call to worship and some of our singing this morning, we also worship a God who is able, His power and His ability. Just as our scriptural call to worship begins by talking about the magnificence of God in light of the stupidity of idols. Just imagine, perhaps it's not that difficult We might look back on those eras and say, what fools to have carved an idol and to take your prayers and your petitions to him. You just made him five minutes ago. I think the same is true when we neglect our Christian responsibility to prayer in general. But we don't worship a God who is unable to hear, a God who is unable to to act. He's sovereign. He's able. He's triune in his sermon. Triune meaning three. Triune, right? Three. God is three persons in this one God, revealed as Father, Son, 
and spirit. Are, are y'all, I, I always laugh when a pastor that I listen to says, are you tracking with me? But when you get a crowd that's looking like they're all super sleepy, I get it. So are you tracking with me? Are you getting where I'm going? That when we know more about God, who he is and who he isn't, that he is sovereign, that he is able, that he is triune, when we proclaim or when we take these petitions to him, uh, we recognize these things. Our prayer is an act of worship, not just for what he can do for us, but who he is. There's a, a, an acrostic uh, that many you'll hear uh, talking about with younger folks. How do I pray? Well, let me tell you, A-C-T-S. Begin your prayer with an adoration of who God is. Move from this adoration to confession. You don't come to God as one who is holy. Uh, You, personally, take your unholiness, your sinfulness, before a holy God. So what ought you to do? You ought to confess your sin. As we heard in Sunday school, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Take your confession to him. T-A-C-T, thanksgiving. How ought we to, before we ask for things, to be able to be thankful for the things that God has done. Thank you for waking me up, for giving me breath in my lungs, for giving me a body to accomplish the things that I'm doing, to give me the creative capacity. I think around the room and the different things you all do for work, that that's not normal. I'm not saying you're abnormal, but I'm saying God's gifted you in a way to do those specific things and you're doing it in the way in which you fulfill those things. You're doing it out of a giftedness that God has given you. Let's be thankful for that. Let's be thankful for that. A-C-T-S, supplication. You're asking for a supply. You're asking for something. You're going on behalf of another person maybe, right? Our statement in our covenant is praying for one another as well as for ourselves. I hope to answer the question, is it okay to pray for myself? Spoiler alert, yes it is. But the the overall thrust of living a life rooted in Christ together as a local church is not just to pray for us individually, but to pray for one another. And I hope to wrap up our time by giving you the easiest applications to be able to do this today and tomorrow. What an awesome thing and how God works these things out. We have an opportunity at 6.30 to come and pray together, to be able to pray for one another, and if you show up, to pray with one another. You don't have to be a 95 prayer to get on the team. All you have to do is have a personal commitment with the Lord Jesus Christ, a personal relationship with him. Shoot, my children don't have that. And sometimes they don't like praying, but for the most part they do. And I'll tell you, they pray for you all. And it is one of the sweetest things. And when we, as their parents, get in their prayers, it's sweet and sometimes sad help dad with his anger. You're like, stop, don't, don't take that to him, right? But God is sovereign. He is able. He is triune. 
But it's not merely a knowledge of God in Keller's definition that it, it is a knowledge of God that ends, that it progresses from this, uh, that it starts. Let me just read it again. Prayer, Keller writes, is continuing a conversation that God has started, right? God spoke it into existence. God wrote his word through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on the writers. So it's a conversation that God has started through his word and his grace, which, right, we need to know about this God, but it's not just about knowing about God because knowing about God's not good enough. There are some really theologically sound demons in hell. If you're like, what are you talking about? Look in the Bible. Even the demons confess those things. So it's not just the knowledge. Keller goes on and says, which eventually becomes a full encounter with him. It's a knowledge that leads into an encounter that you not just know, man, God is strong. He's able. He's sovereign. He's triune. He's able to do all these different things. Praise God that you would know that. But knowledge is not good enough. That it ought to be an experience. That you then experience Him as revealed to us in Scripture through His Son. When we know about Him and we've experienced this redemption, it tells us a lot about who we are. Who we are in relation to God. He's sovereign. He's triune. He's able. Who we are in relation to God. Let's just stick with who we are now in Christ. Now, I know that there are chances that not everyone in this room is a believer a follower who has turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus. And if you've yet to do that, let me plead with you to trust in Him, to turn from your sin, recognizing that this God who is sovereign, able, and triune has reached down into history with His Son, taking on human flesh, dying the death that your sin deserved. Beloved, that is who you are if you've trusted in Christ. And to the one friend who is not saved, that could be true of you today. So who we are as believers in relation to God, we're redeemed. We're we're justified. We're spirit-filled. We're Children, we're redeemed, justified, spirit-filled, and we're children. What great news to know that a redemption not only was needed, right? We come to Christ in our sinful state knowing something's not right here and it needs to be made right. And He is the one who can make us right. He is the one who can redeem He is the one who can make us positionally and functionally justified in his sight. Not in our own justification, but in his justification. We stand on his account, not our own. We're justified in him. We're also spirit-filled. Spirit of God, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in us if we've trusted in Christ. And it is this spirit 
that reminds us, assures us, guarantees us that we are children of God. In time of doubt, of lack of assurance of faith, beloved, cling so tightly to the promise in Scripture that the Spirit testifies to His Spirit that we are children of God, that cry out to Him, Abba, Father. In Sam Albury's sermon, which I'll return to, I'm sure, more uh, as we go, but he said, this might not be a familiar phrase for us. We might not know what that means. You're like, oh, okay, Abba, that's great. In the Jewish culture, this would have been totally normal. Think of it in terms, this is the best I can do, think of it in terms of the most affectionate call to your father. Maybe perhaps you think back to when you were younger and you don't, you don't say dad, you don't say pops, you, don't say, you just say dada, daddy. Friends, the Spirit of God through the resurrection and ascension of Christ testifies to us that we are children of God if we have experienced Him. So it's our knowledge of and our experience of this redemption, justification, spirit filling, and adoption that leads us then to pray. Knowing about Him is not good enough. I know, I know who the greatest basketball player of all time is. There's no doubt in my mind. But I'm not going to have access to him. Right? Because he's retired. He's not playing anymore. Friends, if we would desire such a relationship with someone that we do not know, to fantasize about, to dream about, to hope, to position our... I know he's going to be, and I'll just... Friends, you have daily access. Right? The command is to pray without ceasing, to pray at all times. What's the implication there? That if you pray at all times, someone's going to hear you. You're not waiting on the operator back in the back room, putting the quarter-inch cables into each thing. Yeah, let me connect you. No, friends, in Christ, you have access to the Father. And it's that knowledge of who He is and that love of who we are in Him that ought to drive us to pray So that's my plea to pray, fueled by a knowledge and love of God, right? Remember our twofold categories for keeping this great commandment to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And what's our second greatest commandment? To love your neighbor as yourself. Let's move to love for one another. Our praying for one another is fueled with the knowledge of God and a love of God, but it's also fueled for a love for one another. A love for one another. 
I want to just read a couple New Testament passages of a love for one another that's shown in the way, particularly that the Apostle Paul prays for uh, the church whom he loves. Let's see. The verse we read earlier, Colossians 4, verses 2 through 4, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the world to for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. My passages did not sync up, so that's awesome. But think of all of the different ways. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of then in Philippians, I thank my God, Philippians chapter 1 verse 3, in all my remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will see it forward to completion. There is an octopus down here and it's trying to attack me. That's a bonus for those of you who are online. You see how Paul's words are seasoned with such a love and affection for his people. It's not just a love of God and a knowledge of God. It's also a love for one another. Man, nothing carried over. This is awesome. What might keep us from a love for one another, you might ask? What might keep us from a love for one another? Another. Listen to what D.A. Carson says in his book, Praying with Paul. But notoriously, what so often cuts us off from effective prayer is sheer bitterness, nurtured resist- resentment, nicely preserved grudges, desperate want of forgiveness. Friends, if we are ruled by our negative affections, our negative emotions of one another, we might not be led to pray for one another. But what is it, and I think Satan is very cunning in this, what is it that would allow us to forgive one another? Right? You might say, well, just forgiving them. That's great. But sometimes we don't want to. Sometimes bitterness, grudges, those things of resentment, they take root in our hearts. And to be rooted in Christ means to remove the root of sin of bitterness, grudges, whatever. So how would we do that? Well, prayer would be a good start. But what do we say? We get in this toxic cycle. Well, I'm bitter. I'm not going to pray for them. 
How dumb. How dumb. Because if prayer changes things, if prayer is our communication with a God who's sovereign, he's all-powerful, a God who's able, and he commands us to bring our petitions to him because he cares for us, if we bring, or to use the words that Jesus says, if we keep knocking on that door, if we ask for these things, he'll give it to us. So if we pray that God would cause this root of bitterness to be uprooted, to be removed, and to fill in its place a love for the person that we're embittered towards, what will happen? You will slowly start to change. The circumstances, the scenario, nothing will be different. What's changed? You have. How? Through prayer. So you may say, I don't know. I don't, I don't really have a love. Pray about it. I remember my first uh, ministry position as a student pastor. I was in the first three to six months under this student pastor that I love to this day, helped me grow in a lot of different ways and just showed me how fun it was to be in ministry um, and taught me some of the weirdest phrases, but it's great. One of the things that he notoriously would say to the students before giving them any advice is he'd ask them, have you prayed about it? And so I would get kid after kid after kid come to me, Sean, hey, I just went to Scott and uh, gave him the scenario and wouldn't you believe it? All he said was pray about it. And I, being stupid, was like, well, let me tell you uh, what you should do about that. Just blah, 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 blah. It didn't go super well. Prayer ought to be our first response. Often we hear in media today, I don't want your prayers. I don't want your thoughts. It can't do anything. Don't pray for me. Act. And on face value, for those who don't believe in a God who is sovereign, is triune, and is able, it makes perfect sense. But for believers, this is where things get toppled. The world would say upside down, but we would say right side up. That we believe the one who has the most ability to act, the one who has uh, all power, he's the one that we communicate to through prayer. So we're going to start there. But often our actions and our theology aren't in unison. Yeah, 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 yeah. God is able. He's powerful. He's all those different things, but I'm going to do everything in my power to do. Here's a quote that is popular in Baptist circles that you uh, work as if it is your responsibility to get the result, but you pray as if it's God's. I don't know that that's super helpful. Should we work hard in unison with what we see revealed in Scripture? Absolutely. But we ought to pray even harder. For it is He who is able. That's why Paul, a sermon I preached 
four weeks ago or something like that. I wanted to preach it again, but you're not supposed to do that, at least within like the first year or unless you're going to a different church and then you can preach reuse sermons. But I wanted to preach it because what does Paul do? He says, for this reason, I get on my knees in prayer for you, that you would know these things, that you would know the love of Christ, that this knowledge and this wisdom that far surpasses your ability that you would be able. And then the promise is to him who is able to do far greater than you could ever imagine. This is why we pray. This is why we pray. Beloved, I pray that we would have a deep love for one another, to be guided, to plead for one another in the midst of pain and suffering, to take those other believers to the throne room of Jesus, that he would comfort them in a supernatural way. I'm reminded even recently, we last Sunday, right in here after our service, you want to know, does prayer do something? Yes, it does. Because as Ronnie came and she shared that she was moving to Virginia, a job that she was promised fell through. She had her plane ticket, her moving arrangements kind of fell through, but she was going anyway. And we prayed for her. Not much longer had she left our building from when she gets a call about a new job. Friends, prayer does something. Prayer does something. May we be moved with a knowledge and a love and an experience of God and a love for one another to pray for one another. The second statement, and I won't spend much time here, is to pray for one another as well as for yourself. Is it wrong to pray for yourself? Maybe you're wondering that. In a culture that is so capitulated with self-centeredness, sometimes Let me say, if you're praying prayers of help me get this new car, help me lock in this new house, help me do these different things, and that's all your prayers are about, let me redirect your prayers with a knowledge and a love and an experience of God and a love for one another. But is it wrong to pray for yourself? Absolutely not. In Colossians chapter 4, what we've been looking at this morning, Paul asks for prayers for himself. But even in that, he's not asking for prayers for him to be able to have or to be able to do necessarily under his own compulsion. But it's what? To be able to have a door of ministry open to him. To be able to proclaim The gospel, our prayers ought to be God-centered. They ought to be gospel-saturated. Lord, give me an opportunity today to be able to share the gospel with somebody. The hope of a sovereign God who is able to save. Let me share that hope with somebody. Now, be prepared when you start praying those prayers. Remember, things change when we pray. Get ready. If you're like, Pastor, I want to be able to pray those prayers and not feel like I'm quaking in my boots. If somebody comes up and says, will you share the hope of Jesus with me? And you're like, what the heck just happened? I just prayed a little bit ago. You have two pastors here that love you and want to do nothing more than to see you equipped for the work of ministry. Pastor, what should my response be if they ask me those questions? 
Good question, because they will ask you because you're starting to pray about it. It will happen. Come to Derek or myself. Come to our evangelism training next Sunday at 6.30. Nice transition and pitch. (laughs) Call Derek or myself at any point, and we can walk with you through that you would be equipped for these things. So is it wrong to pray for yourself? Absolutely not. Because in Psalm, I believe it's chapter 85, but uh, wouldn't you believe it? That didn't come through either. I'm going to just go back to, to typing up notes if the printer would work again. It's, it's great. Bear with me just a second. I was close. Psalm 86. Psalm 86, answering quickly, is it okay to pray for myself? The subscript of the chapter, a prayer of David. David's praying this prayer. David, praying to the Lord, says, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Wow, how self-centered of David. No, let's keep going. Preserve my life. For I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. You see how starkly different that is from the self-centered nature of this age? Do these things for me because I'm awesome. I'm your best. I'm the king of your people, Lord. David could have claimed that. But he didn't. He said, I'm your servant. I trust you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for you do I cry all the day. You see how prayer can be emotional? Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to who call upon you. What's David doing? He's doing exactly what we've said. He knows The Lord God, not only from book smart, but he knows experientially the Lord God. And he says, you are abounding in steadfast love. It's to you who I call upon. So because of that, give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you for you answer me. David continues, there is none like you. We're not praying to idols who can't hear. We're not praying to Allah or Buddha or anything like that. We pray to the God of gods, the Lord of lords. There's none like you, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Go home and read the rest of Psalm 86 and continue to marinate in that as the week goes on. What an amazing reminder of how good God is and how King David has experienced him, how he has such an affection for him. Is it wrong to pray for yourself? Absolutely not. But the imperative of our covenant rests on praying for one another more than praying for yourself. Because you you know what they say about 
Um, I mean, you can see this experientially. You have a threat of snow. I mean, we're talking bad snow. What's not on store shelves? Bread, milk, eggs. But how many times are those people going to the store and saying, hey, I'm buying these for other people? Right? Our prayer is to be in the understanding of the people of God that if I'm praying for Miss Becky or if I'm praying for Derek, that because we're keeping the covenant faithfully, Derek's praying for me. Becky's praying for me. It's reciprocal. It's not self-centered. It's selfless. Why? Because we love our neighbor as ourselves. So, quick application. How can we do this? All right, Pastor, it's Sunday. It's 12.02, 12.01. Did you see I didn't wear a watch just for this specific reason? So that I could go long and have an excuse? An easy way to apply what we've just talked about, to be able to pray for one another starting tomorrow. Right? New Year's great. You have the, the changing of the calendar from one year to another. But we have it this month. Today is April 30th. Tomorrow will be May 1st. And I so perfectly put in our bulletin our church membership role of our active members. And you have 25 days to be able to pray for people. What does that mean? That means that you can even have a couple days where you don't do this. And you'll still be able to pray for every single member of our church this month. So use this as your guide. You may say, I'm just not a good, I'm just not a good prayer. I just don't like that. It's weird. What whatever. You have it right in front of you. So your first hesitation's gone. Who who do I pray for? Who is my neighbor? You might say. They're right here. Okay, so that's who. Okay, well, that's great. Now I know who, but what do I pray for them? Well, I'm glad you asked. What do you pray? Nancy Guthrie, author and theologian, has a book uh, called I'm Praying for You, that her chapters of the book are these 40 things, if you open up that page, of 40 things to be able to pray for another believer. Things to be able to pray. Things like, I'm praying that the work of God will be displayed in your life. I'm praying God will make you fruitful. I'm praying that you will not worry about your life. I'm praying that you will live in a way that pleases the Lord. I'm praying that you bring honor to the name of Jesus. I'm praying that you will wait with eager hope for Christ's return. I'm praying for God to work out His plan for your life. I'm praying that you'll cast all your anxieties on God. All 40 of these things you can walk through. And maybe you're like, I don't know which of these 40 things to Pray. Let me encourage you. Two, two things. Two things. Jesus calls us to cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us, and often we don't. Jesus also, through the Apostle Paul, tells us to bear one another's burdens with one another. Right? That reciprocal. Bear one another's burdens. How do you... Give these prayers of petition on behalf of one another. How do you bear these burdens with one another? Well, one, it takes us as a believing community 
as a rooted community that trusts that there's brotherly love, that we're assembling faithfully, that we're praying for one another, and that means I'm going to share my burdens with others. That may mean life burdens of what's going on at work, of what's going on at home. Man, I've noticed I've been really short-tempered. I've noticed my thoughts haven't been the way that I wish they would. You know, I'm noticing that I really don't seem to be struggling in any particular area, but I'm just not glorying in Christ right now. Being able to bear burdens with one another. Developing a culture and community of trust of love for one another, where you are able to share your burdens so that we as the community that loves you the most can bear those with you. Okay, that's one thing. Uh, The second thing, maybe you say, I I just haven't gotten, no, no one's coming to me with any of their burdens. Man, I'm sorry. And, and let me encourage you, that's so great that you are desiring to love another church member in that way. Have you asked them if there's any way you could pray for them? Oh. Do, can I do that? Yes. And you should do that. So as person one Be trusting enough to share your burdens with other church members, knowing that it's not going to be used as ammunition. It's going to be used as weapons of affection because we love you. And for person two, ask. Ask. And from those answers, from those burdens being... Uh, shared with you, you've got 40 awesome things to be able to pray. If you're interested, the link is down there uh, to be able to find uh, Nancy's book. Uh, it's, it's, it's published by 10 of those. I think we have someone who's somewhat closely related with that, uh, that publisher. I think we could figure something out. So if you are there and you're like, I'm going to pray through our church membership directory. And if all it takes is for me to print up a monthly uh, list of who to pray for, for you to do it, I'll do it every single month. <laughs> right? Because we're driven by a knowledge of who God is, that He and He alone is able to make these things happen. And we come to Him through His Son. We're redeemed, justified, Spirit-filled children of God, that we can bring these things to Him. And we love one another in such a way that we want to be able to see God's best for them. And so we pray. Friends, I pray that we would do this as a church body, that we would pray for others as well as ourselves. Let me read in closing this quote from D.A. Carson, talking about the prayers in Paul's epistles. And I quote, If we follow Paul's example, then we will never overlook the monumental importance of praying for others. Prayer will never descend to the level where it has nothing more than a retreat house in which we find strength for ourselves. 
whether through the celebration of praise or through a mystic communion with God or through the relief of casting our cares upon the Almighty. Prayer may embrace all these elements and more, but if we learn to pray with Paul, we will learn to pray with others, for others. We will see it as part of our job to approach God with thanksgiving for others and with intercession for others. In short, our praying will be shaped by our profound desire to seek what is best for the people of God. May we pray this way.